about a year ago, I was drawn in, like much of America, to a TV show called Feud from producer Ryan Murphy. It was all about a real-life rivalry between actresses Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, centered around their time filming their classic, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. It made for some riveting watching, not only because the acting was superior, but because the story was just so painfully fascinating. It spoke of how two women who could have been friends and could have supported each other, guided each other, in the cutthroat world of Hollywood, were instead pitted against one another, not only in their own minds, but in that of the greater public, and even the Hollywood system that declared them rivals in the first place. In the aftermath of this feud, I found myself asking, could these actors have gotten bigger and better at their work if they have worked together instead of just tangentially? Rivalries are inherently fascinating to me because they typically affect not only the individual rivals themselves, but also a whole ecosystem that can grow up around a rivalry, spurring it on and enabling it. Rivalries, in many ways, can actually be good. They can enhance a sport team's motivation, for example, and cause a bond to form between those who support a particular faction. But then again, they can also cause friction, stress, even unethical behavior like cheating, anything to get ahead and win that rivalry. Indeed, it is great drama at its best. And it's not only sports heroes and movie stars that have gotten into the rivalry action. Some of the greatest artists in history have engaged in some serious, curious conflicts. What causes these rivalries is fascinating and vast. Is it art and creativity? Is it money and patronage? Or is it simply ego? And are the artists really in conflict with one another? Or does it just appear that way to us or to their communities? How have rivalries impacted art? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. Today, we are starting an all-new season of episodes dealing with some of the wildest and most complicated rivalries in art history, beginning with the purported feud between Northern European heavyweights Judith Leister and Franz Halls. Welcome to the third season of the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Over the course of this season of the Art Curious podcast, we are going to examine the rivalries between eight groups of artists, and we'll be hopping back and forth across time and space to do so. Today, we are going to locate ourselves squarely in the Netherlands during the 17th century, which is widely praised now as the golden age of Dutch painting. It was a golden age for the whole country, actually, because the Dutch Republic, as it was then called, and comprised not only part of modern-day Netherlands, but also parts of Belgium and Luxembourg, was in the midst of an incredibly prosperous time following their victory in the Eighty Years' War, wherein they sought independence from control by Spanish forces under the leadership of Philip II of Spain. And not only was the Dutch Republic prosperous, but it was ridiculously so. At the time, it was the wealthiest country in all of Europe and led the way not only in things like trade and marketing, but also made huge strides in science and, of course, art. 
and what happens when you have a really rich citizenry who have newly found independence and freedom, not only from foreign tyranny, but also their religious precepts? Well, you have a crazy substantial increase for the interest in art. People were buying, and they wanted to buy anything and everything. This is the wonderfully arty world into which Judith Leister came into being. Judith was born on July 28, 1609, in the city of Harlem, into a large family of cloth makers slash brewers. What's interesting to me as an art history nerd is that her pursuit of art seems to be pretty independent, meaning that she was inspired to do so not because of a family interest or tradition. As we've noted in previous episodes of the Art Curious podcast, the majority of female artists up to the 20th century were taught by their mostly male family members, fathers and brothers especially, but not Judith. In fact, it's not totally clear how and where she began to paint, and we'll be coming back to that shortly. But what we do know is that Judith was an independent working artist by the tender age of 18, achieving local fame by age 19, and soaring to new heights when she purportedly became the first woman admitted to the Art Guild of St. Luke in Harlem at the age of 24 in 1633. We might want to take this first ever delineation with a grain of salt though, because there's been some debate that perhaps dozens of other women may have been part of the guild during the 17th century. But the media that many worked in weren't considered to be of primary importance, meaning that they were the so-called women's arts, like embroidery, pottery painting, and so forth. And because these were media focused on, around, and by women, the records for such artists and their creations are spotty at best. Regardless, Judith Leister was a painter and was admitted to the guild as such. And as far as we know, only one other woman was admitted in painting by the end of that very century. Looking at Judith's self-portrait, a famous piece of bravura painting that can be found today in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., it is easy to see why she is so celebrated. In the painting, we see Judith all dressed up in her finery, with an incredible gravity-defying lace collar, painting a portrait of a laughing man playing a fiddle or a violin. This was a subject matter typically referred to as a trony, which shows a kind of stock character with an exaggerated facial expression. Some tronies celebrated the senses, presenting us with representations of taste with people imbibing heartily in drinks, or smell by, you know, smelling flowers. This one might very well be all about sound, as if we can imagine the music coming from the canvas that Judith is painting. But then there's the best part, and that is Judith herself. While we are looking at her, she's looking directly at us, and she's smiling, with her mouth partly open. It's almost like we can imagine that she's about to speak with us. She's so engaging, casual, relaxed, very friendly looking. And that's all before even engaging with those loose, beautiful brushstrokes that make her so wildly contemporary feeling. Leister is the whole deal. And this little painting captures so much of what is great about her. Judith Leister's big year came when she was 26. By that time, she was not only well-established as an artist, but she was also teaching other artists, as she had at least three students apprenticing with her by that point. But... A major change came that year, too, which may have had some lasting ramifications for her career. It was then that she married a fellow artist named Jan Mientz Molinar, and it was during this point that her career peters out, possibly in favor of managing his career. 
Only a few works of art have come to light that can be dated to Leicester's post-wedding period, and many historians have blamed the marriage, or even Molinar himself, as stunting Judith's artistic growth and development. But as author Bridget Quinn notes in her wonderful book, Broad Strokes, 15 Women Who Made Art and Made History in That Order, not only was Judith dealing with the trials and travails of running a household, which included five, five children, we also need to come to grips with the fact that throughout most of art history, the majority of her works were so good that for the longest time, they were assumed to have been created by another famed and more famous painter. Bridget Quinn describes a scene of an infamous 1893 discovery of a new, incredible Dutch painting at the Louvre and the exuberance surrounding it, and the immediate come down when the Louvre then realized that that old Judith Leister had completed the work and not their hoped-for and vastly beloved Franz Hals. Franz Hals was born sometime in either 1582 or 1583. No one is quite sure exactly when. He was born in Antwerp, but he moved with his family to Harlem only a couple of years later. And so he grew up in the same golden time and place as Judith Leister, except that he had the advantage of more than 20 years on her to get himself established. He began his career as an art restorer, interestingly enough, before segueing into becoming one of the preeminent portrait painters of the Dutch Republic in the entirety of the 17th century. One of the things that makes a Franz Hals painting so wonderful is their loose and lively brushstrokes, wherein the paint looks like it is still in the process of drying. That's how spontaneous and fresh it looks. And because of this, his portraits are sprightly and bright and engaging in a way that many other Dutch paintings, all formal and dark, just aren't. So it's pretty easy to see why and how Franz became so popular. Himself a member of the Guild of St. Luke's, like Leicester was, he was sought after for so long as the best painter of the glitterati of Dutch society. Not that things were always so easy for him. It appears that trouble had followed the Hall's legend right from the start, and continues, somewhat erroneously, to carry on today. First and foremost, there was his personal life. His first wife died early, as did two of their children. Adding insult to injury, people began speculating that Hans had beat his poor, now dead wife, but it turns out that's totally bogus. Strangely enough, there seems to have been another Franz Hals living in Harlem at the same time. And he was an abusive monster, not the artist. So, you know, that's good at least. But his second wife was something of a firecracker. And though their marriage seems to have been a good one, Hall still had to deal with the fact that his wife was arrested multiple times for participating in public brawls. And then there was the subject matter of his paintings. When Halls wasn't painting the aristocracy and all their fancy threads, he was painting what might lovingly be called the riffraffs. Gypsies, musicians, prostitutes, carousers, and lots and lots of drunks. We're talking leery eyes, squinty smiles, and wide laughing mouths. Just take, for example, his gypsy girl, which can be found today at the Louvre. Glancing off to her left side with unkempt curly hair, and her exceedingly ample breasts just threatening to come free from her low-cut blouse, this girl is all fun. And she knows it. She's smiling and looks like she's in the middle of a really good time. The bright and casual way that works like Gypsy Girl were made makes me love them so much more than his official commissions. But to contemporary society, 
Oh boy. All it could do was stir the rumor mill. And that certainly didn't help the money to come pouring in. On top of it all, Halls often wound up in debt and ended up being sued at one point or another by a passel of people that makes it sound like a nursery rhyme. His butcher, his baker, and his shoemaker all sued him. The baker, by the way, was very famously paid off by a lien on Halls' property and several portraits. Man, I sure hope those stayed in the family. Another famous story about Halls and his difficulties is an anecdote dating from 1633, which pits him against the Amsterdam Crossbow Civic Guard, who sought a group portrait from a talented artist. Impressively, they passed over local superstars, including a little someone named Rembrandt van Rijn, and chose Franz Hals as their anointed one. But the project did not go smoothly, to say the least. Hans delayed for years. And once he actually started getting to work, he began bickering with the Civic Guard as to whether or not Hals would travel to Amsterdam to complete the portrait, or if the Civic Guard would travel to Harlem to sit for him. It boggles my mind that Halls would insist that a whole rabble of men would travel to see him instead of exceeding to travel to see them. But hey, I'm not a hugely famous sought-after artist. Unfortunately for said artists, though, the Civic Guard ended up firing him in 1636 and passed the project along to another prominent painter. We'll learn more about the troubled Franz Halls and his issues with Judith Leister right after this quick break. Stay with us. Like many of you, I love learning new, fascinating information about the subjects I enjoy most. That's why I'm excited about The Great Courses Plus, and I want you to check it out. You can get unlimited access to over 9,000 lectures that are provided by engaging and award-winning experts on everything you could possibly want. They have fantastic courses on art, music, science, history. They even have courses on hobbies like cooking, photography, or learning a new language. And with The Great Courses Plus, they make it really easy to enjoy lectures on your own schedule whenever you want. You can watch them on your TV, on your laptop, on your tablet, or your smartphone. And they even have The Great Courses Plus app, which allows you to stream the audio version like a podcast from wherever you are. The Great Courses Plus has a wonderful course that I highly recommend, Dutch Masters, The Age of Rembrandt. All the art, as well as all the social, religious, and political environments that surrounded and inspired the works of people like Rembrandt, Vermeer, and Franz Halls. So if you were excited about this episode today, but really want to know a lot more, this is the perfect course for you. I know you are going to enjoy The Great Courses Plus as much as I do, and because of that, I have arranged a very special limited-time offer just for my listeners. You can get a full month of unlimited access to enjoy all of their lectures for free. But to get this special offer, you have to go to my URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. So start your free month today. I promise you, you will love it. There is something amazing for everyone. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Welcome back to Art Curious. In the midst of Franz Hals's problems with the Amsterdam Crossbow Civic Guard, he had a little run-in with Judith Leister, too. But we have to back up for a minute first. Though it hasn't been verified and no documents exist to confirm it, it's entirely possible that Leister and Halls already had a working relationship. As many art historians, like Leister profiler Oga Opfel, 
widely believed that Leicester herself had apprenticed with Halls, learning at the master's feet, so to speak. But here is some kind of truth. Their style and working and the typical subject matter that both flocked to are similar enough to presume that one must have taught the other. And truly, Halls himself would not have balked at getting a paycheck for tutoring yet another student. Interestingly enough, the issues between Leicester and Halls stem from a student-teacher relationship that had gone sour. By 1635, Leicester was already mentoring at least three students, all male, one of whom ended up making a little bit of a stink. His name was Willem Wouters, and Leicester had agreed to take him up as an apprentice. But after only three or four days, Wouters abruptly jumped ship and abandoned Leicester in favor for working with another artist. Guess who it was? Yep, Franz Halls himself. But this just wasn't kosher on multiple levels. First off is the fact that Leicester was due some funding for her work as an instructor, which Wouters and his family didn't provide. And second, as a guild member, this just wasn't done. There were proper channels for this kind of behavior, and permissions and guidance were supposed to be sought if a student wanted to break free from a master. I think of all of this as a typical bureaucracy. So think of a university system, for example. You just can't show up and change your major and cancel all your classes without filling a bunch of papers out, getting your advisors to sign off and on to everything, and doing things in a particular order. Watters just didn't do that. But also, neither did Halls. Halls should have asked permission from the Guild before accepting Leicester's student. To make matters worse, Leicester demanded that if Wouters wasn't going to pay his tuition right away, then he'd better return to her studio fast and continue on as agreed. But Halls wasn't about to relinquish his new student back to his original instructor. And so, Leicester brought forward a case against Wouters and Franz Halls. Leicester brought the issue to the attention of Frederick Pott, dean of the Guild of St. Luke, who then brought it to the attention of the Guild's governing board. And that's when Halls was finally told to come to Jesus, so to speak. He was ordered to immediately turn Waters away from his studio, because Halls already had the maximum number of apprentices and students that the guild would allow. If he refused, Hans would have been out a significant amount of cash. Not only because he would be fined for his insubordination, but then he'd also have to pay a kind of new student or new apprentice fee to the guild. What's unclear is whether or not the payment of the fee and the fine would have permitted Wouters to stay with Halls. But, you know, that's a whole other matter. And then there was Judith Leister's side of the demands. Even though Wouters had only been at Leister's atelier for a couple of days, she insisted on being paid three months' worth of tuition, probably as reparation for losing an assistant so quickly and without going through the guild. The Wouters family balked because that price was way too high but they ended up reconciling and splitting the difference, with the family paying Leicester for about one and a half months of tuition. And with that, the financial and bureaucratic squabble had finally been put to rest, and it was business as usual, right? Well, the question remains as to whether the squabble over Wouters permanently damaged the relationship between Leicester and Halls. Remember that these two had possibly worked together in their own teacher-student relationship, so they may very well have had a significant history together. But their friendship may not have survived the apparent breach, and a cryptic piece of evidence was found in the Leicester Molinar home following the death of both artists, Judith in 1660 and Jan in 1668. 
Two paintings were listed in an inventory of Molinar's possessions. Two portraits of the couple, which were found in an annex after Molinar's death, with one painted by Molinar himself and the other seemingly painted by one Franz Halls. So what does this mean exactly? It turns out that no one's quite sure, really, and what little evidence there is leaves a lot of room for interpretation. According to authors Peter Biesboer and James A. Wellu, authors of the book Judith Leister, A Dutch Master and Her World, there's a possibility that Franz Hals himself didn't paint these pictures, but that Franz Hals the Younger did. Franz Hals's senior son, naturally, who himself became a painter and would have been about 18 when these portraits were painted. So he certainly could have painted them, and he was indeed a known painter, though he was most notable for his still lifes. Or perhaps Franz Hals the Elder did paint the portraits prior to the couple's wedding, before the ruckus with the guild all went down. If it was painted after the fact, though, by Franz the Elder, then it would be a gentle signifier that all things did go back to normal after all, and that the two were friendly enough to come together for an intimate family portrait. But what actually happened to this potential Hals portrait of Leicester and Molinar, I can't tell you, because I can't seem to find it. The probable Molinar painting surfaced in the 20th century, but this potential Halls? Not yet. While the financial duel between Judith Leister and Franz Halls was an interesting dramatic point in both of their lives, to me, it's actually the least interesting of the rivalries between them. And yes, I mean rivalries, as in two rivalries. Because the other rivalry is one that was spurred on hundreds of years after both of the artists had died. So follow me here. Shortly after her death, Judith Leister was largely forgotten. And despite the fact that she signed her paintings with a special monogram, which was her initials entwined with a shooting star, a fabulous pun on her last name, which translates to lodestar or polestar in Dutch, the vast majority of her works were nevertheless attributed to men. And not only Frans Hals, but also to her husband, Jan Molinar. So even that incredibly enchanting self-portrait by Leister was credited to Franz Hals and was assumed for centuries to be a portrait of one of the artist's daughters. It wasn't until that 1893 incident at the Louvre that Judith was technically, quote-unquote, rediscovered and brought back into the fold of the art historical canon. And when that first catalog resume of her work, completed by the great Frima Fox Hofrichter, finally, finally appeared in 1989, it listed dozens of works of art previously assigned to male artists. The fact of all of this is that it comes down to the supreme patriarchal nature of the arts throughout all of history. Art history, by the way, is also supremely white, which is another undeniable fact that sorely needs rectifying. We've talked a lot about the maleness of art history in previous episodes of the show, but it bears reiterating. There was, and probably still is for some, this concept that if an artwork is really, really good, then it can't have been created by a woman. And painting and sculpting, for example, long considered to be the very top of artistic production, was so technical and precise that only men could or should be able to undertake it so successfully. Which is why women were so often relegated to these lesser categories like embroidery, textiles. The real rivalry between Leicester and Halls was one that was foisted upon them by generations of scholars who came after, who basically followed this male-centric thinking and automatically assigned Leicester's paintings to male artists. 
Leicester and Hulls weren't technically artistic rivals during their lifetimes. Their run-in regarding Willem Wouters was far more mundane. What rivalry that remained had nothing to do with them, really, and more about how they were perceived. Franz Halls, the undeniable master, maker of all things golden in the golden age. Judith Leister. Who's that? Some lady? It's in these moments that I'm supremely grateful that art history is, and has been, making wonderful strides in becoming more inclusive and diverse. But the fact that we so frequently pit artists against one another who may not have actually squabbled seriously in real life reminds me that we still have so far to go. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, it's a sneaky war of backbiting and slander between two of the Renaissance greats. That's coming up in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to this first episode of the third season of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me in association with Sardle.com, which provided much of the research for this episode. This is actually the first of three episodes this season that we are doing in collaboration with Sardle. Sardle encourages you to see art history differently, and they have a plethora of incredibly fun and informative videos, blog posts, and articles on their website. Check it out at Sardle.com. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki Creative. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight, an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com, and thank you so much to the generous folks at Anchorlight for funding this third season. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to the show, and it is fully tax-deductible. Follow the donate links on our website for more details. Also go to our website for images, information, and links to all of our previous episodes. That is artcuriouspodcast.com. You can contact us there. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. And remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell anyone you know about the show. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in rivalries of art history.